It's a little-known fact that Cheerscast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Hey, uh, Sam, has it ever occurred to you that there might be some public interest in your life story? Oh, you mean because of my baseball career and my battle against alcohol and uh, the irony of owning a bar now? Right. Never crossed my mind. <laughs> How about this? Type out 50 pages, submit it to me, I'll show it to a publisher. Always looking for a good story. <laughs> hey, that's great. Why, why are you doing this for me? Well, I like to encourage young writers, you know, especially one who has the potential of being inferior to me. <laughs> Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Cast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me this time is former guest of the show from Season 1, the host of the Houston Sports Talk podcast, Robert Land. What's up, man? How's it going? It's, it's always great to do this. It's always so much fun. The, the only thing that sucks is that I don't get the enjoyment of, of listening to it afterwards like I do on a weekly basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit longer, but yeah, it's uh, but thank you for coming back, and uh, I made sure that you came back for a, a really nice episode. This is one of my favorites from the season, so. Yeah, if, if I have an idea, it's like, well, it's great. Now I can tell them, but then there's not, well, I kind of want to hear what the guest has to say and, and that kind of thing, but I, I remember one thing that I had forgotten to mention last time because this happened right before we talked the last time but my uh co-host for many many years on houston sports talk on my podcast he lives out in la and one of the things that he was telling me and it was just a couple of weeks before we had talked last time was he was jogging out there and i think he usually passes a golf course or something like that and he saw ted dancing roaming around <laughs> nice yeah that was pretty cool uh so yeah he, occasionally he, he he has a celebrity sighting but uh he, his first time he had, he had run into uh ted dance and uh a, a couple of other things I, I was gonna mention right off the bat because i think this would be great for our listeners uh james burroughs the legendary director of cheers was recently on uh, gilbert godfrey's amazing colossal podcast and i definitely recommend any fan of TV sitcoms in general, but obviously cheers to take a listen. And according to my best friend, IMDB, uh, <laughs> Burroughs directed all but two of the 275 Cheers episodes, as you know. And he told a story about the first season of the show when their ratings were just rock bottom, basically dead last. And he got a fan letter from Norman Lear. And okay. Burroughs said that uh, he and the Charles brothers, the, the head writers and producers, went to lunch with Norman Lear. And as Burroughs said, who better to go to lunch with than the man who created Archie Bunker? Uh, it, it was incredible. He said, we were in awe of Norman. It was so wonderful to see that he was also in awe of us. <laughs> wow, that's pretty incredible company. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was also interesting. I, I don't know if I knew this and you probably did, but he said that Cheers was initially going to be set in a hotel. And yeah, then a, yeah, that then was a bar. The, it was it was a bar to hotel. Well, it, if you, I mean, going uh, the evolution of the show and the origin. I mean, it kind of like took a, a lot of different lights, but it was partly inspired by Faulty Towers, which of course is set in a hotel. And yeah, at one point they were thinking it was going to be a hotel bar, um, and then I'm not sure if it was Burroughs' idea or the Charles Brothers, but somebody had decided, no, let's take it out of the hotel setting and put it in a sports bar. And then they like went through a list of different cities that it could have been in. But yeah, I do remember hearing that it was at one point going to be a hotel. Yeah, he said it was a hotel and then a bar on the way to Vegas, sort of maybe Barstow or something like that. And then one of the real moments where he knew he had something – uh, as he was describing, it was when George went as Norm walked in for the first time onto the set and the audience just started immediately laughing. He hadn't said a word at that point. It was just the attitude. And Burroughs thought, wow, we got something. Yeah, they just I, I, I've heard that, too. Just like the atmosphere. They knew just looking at him. Oh, yeah, that's that type that belongs at this place. Yeah. 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 Great stuff. And and yeah, definitely. Obviously, you're fans of Cheers. So it, it's worth, definitely worth a listen. And Burroughs is just, you know, he, he directed everything over the course, every major sitcom. I mean, he yeah. was there for that. Yeah, he was one of those guys that they, they hired just to direct the pilot of the episode or the pilot of a series just to sort of set the tone. But yeah, I, I hadn't heard that he was on the show, but I'm definitely going to take a listen after we record this. So uh cool cool so and uh i mean as you are a returning guest we've heard your cheers origin so let's dive right into this week's episode which is season two episode nine they called me mayday written by david angel directed obviously by james burroughs the original air date was thursday december 1st 1983 when famous talk show host and literary critic Dick Cavett comes to the bar, Diane hopes that he might help her get published. She is dismayed, however, when Cavett is more interested in publishing Sam's memoir, until Sam convinces her that ghostwriting his book could be the best thing for both of them. A few days later, Cavett returns having read a sample of the manuscript. Though he opts not to pass it along to his publisher, he does offer the helpful tip that if Sam and Diane rewrite the book to play up the spiciness of Sam's sexual escapades, other publishers that traffic in more lurid material might be interested. Meanwhile, Norm's high school buddy Wally Bodell finds out that Norm and Vera are separated and starts making a move on her. After Norm sicks the cops on him as a prank, Wally returns, furious, and the two of them wrestle for the honor of seeing Vera. Said wrestling match occurs on the floor of cheers and lasts long past closing time. Finally, Norm prevails, and after sending Wally off, goes to call Vera. All the while, Sam and Diane have been in the office turning each other on with the power of their prose. And that was They Called Me Mayday, so... Rob, what did you think of this episode? It was just one home run line after another. I, I think they jammed more great lines in this episode than just about any episode that we'd seen to this point in the series. And, and you know, I don't know. It, you've seen so many of these over and over again. Does this one have about as many good lines as you've seen, period? It really does. That was my first note was I was like, oh, man, I could ha I have like, all right, what is my obvious home run? And then like nine runners up after it. <laughs> Right, right, like, exactly. This is a really smart, funny episode. And it's really centered around these two different plots. You've got the 
I mean, you could even juggle which one is the A plot and which one is the B plot. I mean, I would say the A plot, because it deals with the stars, Sam and Diane, meeting Dick Cavett and the writing of this book and everything. And the Wally Bodell character really doesn't come in until 10 minutes into it. But his feud with Norm kind of dominates the second half. And that's really, really good. Both of these things are awesome. They're great storylines. I love the cold open with Sam walking into the bar in the morning and Norm's already there with his newspaper and coffee, which it feels like that should happen every episode. But uh, Norm said Vera called and Sam asked, you know, hey, you guys going to patch things up? And Norm says, no, she just wanted to reach out and nag someone. Right, right. Because and, of the famous the sort of AT&T promo, which would have been much more famous, much more recognizable at the time, was reach out and touch someone. Uh, yeah, so, that that was such a ubiquitous thing that exactly. everybody understood it, you know? Exactly. So the reach out and nag someone was really good. But yeah, yeah, Norma sitting there, like in a bathrobe with slippers on. <laughs> like, clearly, he just, he crashed there overnight and we found out he's been there for a long time. He's been crashed. But of course, he doesn't want to pay rent or he, he feels compelled to pay Sam back, but not a dollar a month. That would be too much. He goes, you know, not a dollar a month. And, and you know, he's like, oh, I got to pay something. And, you know, Sam's like, well, how about a dollar a month? And, you know, Norm's like, come on, what, what 50 cents a month. And you could just tell, obviously, that Norm was just messing with him and stuff like that. It was this great. Is no security deposit. either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's, I mean, you're right, it sort of does feel like Norm always lives in there, and in future episodes, future seasons, they'll play up the fact that Norm has his own key mate, he's there before they are, he's kind of, he pretty much is a live-in resident. Yeah, the the thing with Dick Cavett, though, I mean, it, it's kind of funny because you and I have done two of these, and uh, both episodes have included unique cameos, the, the one we did last season had uh, Red Sox legend Louis Tiant. So yeah, uh, yeah. I love I love the ca- cameos and, and it's always they're always good in cheers. And this one really played to Dick Cavett's strength. I mean, okay, I mean, obviously I'm a little bit younger. I knew him by name, but I didn't grow up watching Dick Cavett. I mean, I I kind of I'll be honest, I think the first time I ever saw him was in the movie Beetlejuice. He had a small role in that. But I knew of him as this kind of personality and then, so really watching this episode was the first time I got a sense of him as more or less himself and how quick-witted he was. Like, I, I don't know if he included any of his own lines or if the writer for this episode, David Angel, just knew what to give him. But he takes this material and, like, talk about home runs. He knocks every one of his lines out of the park. He is hilarious and he's sharp. He's, like, perfectly cut from the mold, the, the mold of who we saw in a recent episode, Sumner, and then Frazier. Like, he, he fits in with this world, even as, like, the, the elite, like, highbrow literary critic. Yeah, Cavett's show, I mean, it was even before my time. I'm pretty old, but it was it was before me. But what I loved about Dick Cavett was how natural his acting was and, and how he did what can be very difficult, which is just act like yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe he started to refine that skill because he had acting credits before that where he had played himself like in the classic sitcom The Odd Couple and the iconic Annie Hall. In fact, I recently rewatched, uh, you know, just recently – a 1986 episode of Kate and Allie. And it was a couple of years after this. And he just knows how to be Dick Cavett and be Dick Cavett on camera. And more importantly, he has no qualms about making fun of his persona, which is great. Right, right. Yeah. And and yeah, every line. And of course, Diane just gushes over to she sees. And, and 
first of all, it, it's set up masterfully because he walks in with some guy and Diane recognizes him and she goes, Coach, do you know who that is? And Coach looks at him and, of course, Coach being Coach, he's like, who, the guy with Dick Cavett? <laughs> perfect, perfect setup for Coach. Yeah, Coach, coach just, uh, he has so many of the good lines in this episode. We're, we, we're going to get to some of those, but... You know, it's it's Diane walks over there. One of the first lines that really stick, stuck out to me was, you know, Sam sees Diane staring at Dick Cavett and says, I don't like the look of on her face. <laughs> and, and Carla goes, I haven't seen one I do like. <laughs> That's good. It's good. One of my favorite Carla lines, too. Just it's really, really set up well. Yeah. And so many of the lines in this episode, when you think about them, they're just kind of obvious banter. But the writers are so good at taking something that's really obvious in a, in a line and twisting it to give it that punchline. And they do it so well through this out, this whole episode. Yeah, they really, really do. Um, and of course, Diane is gushing over to Cavett, can't stop talking to him so much so that she can't even take his order, which becomes a joke later on that he's, she's like, she call, refers to Cheers as a desert of banality. And he's like, no, I wouldn't call it a desert. That would be an easier place to get a drink. Yeah, yeah, I've got that one written down too. We're thinking on this on the same stuff. Yeah, Um, and then of course she can't help herself. She starts taking out her own poetry, and and you see him responding to it just by not responding to it, and just "Mm -hmm, okay. How long am I going to have to endure this? Yeah, it's it's perfect, Diane. It's Diane at her best, kind of being the suck up, and, and especially to somebody that she admires a ton. And we see we see this in other episodes, and. You know, she's reading her poems to Cavett when Sam walks over to her and says, uh, hey, Diane, somebody needs you at another table. And she says, who? And Sam says, everybody at this one. (laughs) (laughs) Which I have. I have to imagine that line probably would have impressed somebody like Dick Cavett, that type of wit. Like he was probably like, oh, that was a good line. Um, So then right after that, he he, Sam introduces himself. He's like, hey, I'm sorry about that. I'm Sam Malone. I'm the owner. If you need anything, you know, just let me know. And Dick Cavett recognizes him and he's like, hey, didn't you used to play baseball? And they have this sort of connection. He recalls, he's like, I saw you play at Yankee Stadium one time. And I love this exchange. Sam is like, oh, yeah, did I have a good day? He's like, I hope so. Or no, he's like, did I have a good night? And Cavett's like, I hope so. You had a really lousy day. Yeah, and then Sam talks about, you know, they, they get into the alcoholism and stuff like that. But what uh, was great was uh, he was asking about a certain game or something like that. And, Sam, you know, Sam kind of makes fun of himself and says, yeah, I've had alcohol problems. So there's a lot of stuff I forgot, like 1974, <laughs> 1975. And, uh, you know, Dick has the great line. Uh, well, uh, yeah, 1975, you guys won the pendant that year. And, and uh, Sam's like, Thanks for telling me. That's great. <laughs> yeah, he's like, we did? Hey, great. Hey, yeah, surprised, which the, the, I, I love that line for the comedic purposes, but it's one of those things that kind of like stuck with me because as I have been going through this show and having to be sort of hyper analytical about everything, which is really not the purpose of these shows and they were never meant to be scrutinized to this degree, but I do try and like fit a sort of timeline and how much continuity is consistent from like episode to episode and season to season. And figuring out exactly when Sam's career ended is a little tricky because in season one, he did, there was an episode where he did mention that his career ended in 1974. Um, so when he says, you know, I don't really remember 74, 75. So, and I mean, Kevin says 75, the year you won the pennant. I mean, it's 
maybe he's not saying that Sam was on the team at that time, but it is a little bit, a little bit nebulous. But I mean, there's so many, I mean, I'm sure in a later season episode, they'll say something else that contradicts that. You just, I, I would be foolish to kind of hold any kind of rigorous scrutiny to this and imagine that everything fits in perfectly. Yeah, the weird thing about the sitcoms of that era and maybe the shows of that era, but specifically the sitcoms, if you go back to a lot of stuff from the 70s and 80s, that kind of continuity that they weren't concerned about, they they weren't looking back at a lot of stuff. I mean, that's why you have this weird stuff with so many of the sitcoms back in that generation where you'll have an actor show up two or three times playing different characters, which is which is strange Mm -hmm. now when you look back. It's yeah. it's almost like they didn't expect you to go look back at the episodes or the episodes to be rerun as many times as as they end up being rerun over the years. And I'm sure with in the case of Cheers, they were never expecting they would even get into syndication, let alone you know you know the the reruns and everything like that. And you know DVDs, they couldn't have never imagined that. I mean, they were hanging on by the skin of their teeth for the first couple of years. Oh yeah, for sure. And and it's it's interesting because when you watch this episode. You know, again, it, it's the usual thing where, you know, Diane, she, she thinks her poetry when she's reading the poetry is, is the greatest poetry ever. And she thinks it, she has this incredible ego about how good her writing is. I was kind of wondering what you thought about this, because, you know, she's got an ego about that and some other things. And then Sam has a huge ego about, you know, his his way with women but who do you think has the bigger ego between Sam and Diane? I mean, it uh, it depends on sort of like what they, they have the ego about, as you pointed out. I mean, I definitely think, I mean, Diane is a snob. It, it's put right out there. In a previous episode, just a couple episodes ago, like Sam actually calls her on it when uh, her ex-fiance Sumner comes back, that she is, she is a snob and an elitist. And yeah, I think she has a huge ego when it comes to her area of what would be considered expertise like the arts the humanities literature dance poetry stuff like that i i think she it does have unrealistic uh, assumptions about herself whereas sam i think he's considerably more grounded or or his ego is more i, I mean based on his actual achievements <laughs> he's like, he has more right to be so I, I would say probably her ego is better. Her ego is bigger. The thing that he doesn't have an ego about, it's interesting, his baseball career. You know, he has no <laughs> he has no ego about that. And and she's got her things where she has a lot of soft spots where she doesn't feel sh- like she's up to things in, in, in d- definite ways. So they, they definitely have, you know, a huge ego in some areas and then in other areas, it, it's not as much at all. I mean, in fact, you know, I, it's really, you know, they're a psychologist, I think, dream to, to walk in. <laughs> yeah, to, right. to, yeah. And, and speaking of his his sort of career and the way it ended, um, when Kevin actually said, like mentions, you know, that he would be interested in publishing Sam's memoir, when Sam is trying to convince her, he kind of pulls her aside and he, you know, talks about losing his 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 career and everything and like what it could mean to get it back. His his line has always kind of um, he, he said he mentions like throwing away his chance to be famous. It's always reminded me of uh, a Tom Hanks speech from the movie A League of Their Own, um, which uh, you probably remember when he's talking to Gina Davis when she's threatening to quit the team to because her husband come back, and he's like, "I lost five years of my career to drinking, five years, and now there's not anything I wouldn't give to get back just one day of it." I love that scene, and, and Sam's kind of his reference here is always kind of like reminding me of that. Like 
he because because it, it's come up with him before, you know, like on an early season one episode when he got the chance to be interviewed by Dave when he could relive those those that past glory. Uh, you really do see the pain uh, and the the awareness that his his stupidity and his weakness for alcohol is what cost him the greatest job he could ever imagine, which was you know being a pro ball player. Yeah, it really sets the table for the whole series and that that underlying thing with him and you know just what what he's dealt with. And I mean, we, I, I'm sure you've talked about this before um, over the year over the last couple of years, but you know that that's the big thing when you watch this series is it's a sitcom and you it's so funny and it's got all of these great lines but at the same time there's this really deep-seated thing with this guy this the alcoholism and, and what he had gone through that always kind of sits there and it's a it's a real great sort of yin and yang on the backdrop of the show and really gives you you know this guy this guy that you really want to root for because of what he's gone through yeah yeah absolutely so uh, switching gears then to the norm the norm plot Wally Bodell is played by the actor Walter Okowitz. Okowitz? How do I suppose that's... Yeah, Okowitz is yeah. The way, what it looks like to me. And he, yeah. he's one of those actors that you know and you probably like, but you can't place him. Like, where have I seen him before? And, and he's just because he's guested in a ton of TV classics. I, I was going through the list yeah. <laughs> and it's Taxi and Seinfeld and Family Ties and Who's the Boss, Dharma and Greg, ER, Married with Children, Moonlighting and on and on and on. And I'll, I'll pick it up. He was in The Rockford Files, Family Ties, The A-Team, Night Court, Falcon Crest. He's in Married with Children. Yeah, he was just, he was one of those guys, like you said, where have I seen this guy before? You've seen him on everything. Um, I, I do think he is probably better recognized. He was like the cable man on an episode of Seinfeld. Uh, he played Jacques Renault on the show Twin Peaks, uh, which is one of my favorite shows from that era. Um, he was on the Flash TV series. He did some voices for Batman the Animated Series. Like, yeah, he's just one of those guys that you recognize him when you see him because he's been on everything. And yeah, he comes in and, of course, he, big entrance because he's sitting at the bar and he recognizes Norm and he calls him Moon Glow. Uh, and this goes back to them being high school buddies who were on the same wrestling team. And there was this whole story about, like, in one of the wrestling championships, Norm's opponent pulled his his pants down or a singlet or something and exposing his butt to the entire audience. And that's how he got the name Moonglow. And he chose, he's like, hey, that's how I caught Vera's attention. We get this whole little, uh, this whole sort of back and forth of them being competitors. And after Wally leaves, Norm is kind of crestfallen. He's like, I know this guy. He's going to go after Vera. He moves fast. And he even says, he's like, I wonder if Vera will let me kiss her at their wedding. And, and Coach is like, I'm sure she will. He's like, she didn't at, he did, she didn't at ours. Of course, I <laughs> yeah, did. Yeah. And the best little normism, he's like, of course, I didn't really try that hard, which is almost my <laughs> highlight for this one. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the names in this episode are great because you, you, you mentioned Moonglow, and then that, that was good, but then Cliff is... He's trying to come up for a fake name. He's trying to sort of get Norm's back. But, you know, Cliff steps in and as soon as he tries to do that, because, you know, the guy asks, well, you know, who's the who's the who's the guy that Norm's dating? What, you know, because Cliff acts like he's dating uh, this girl and, and uh, Cliff makes up the name Tanya. And then the, well, what's the last name? Cocoa Butter. <laughs> Tanya Cocoa Butter. Which is perfect, perfect. <laughs> yeah, of course, he's uh, he's you know he's finding somebody to replace Vera Tanya Cocoa Butter, <laughs> which with with Cliff's you know faux Boston accent sounds perfect. Cocoa Butter. And then and after the conversation ends, of course, then Coach is like, "Well, when 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 am I going to meet this girl? <laughs> yeah. You should never bring Tanya to the bar." Yeah, I love it. 
Um, after the break, when we come back, uh, we get this little moment where, you know, oh, there's this sort of running subplot with Coach trying to exercise and get healthier and everything because one of his old baseball buddies from back in the day has passed away. And Cliff, of course, is teaching him prehensile isotonic geometrics, as if that is a real thing, where you just basically flex a muscle for a minute or something. And he says, like, the added bonus is you get you get healthier, but you don't perspire. So when we come back later, Coach is trying to like get healthier, and he does handstand push-ups behind the bar, which is a perfect little sight gag where we just see his legs sticking out over the bar as he starts doing push-ups. And everybody's all impressed. And it's a classic bit, because Sam comes in and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, handstand push-ups, watch me do them one-handed. And Sam is like, coach, you never did handstand push-ups in the majors. That was Johnny Driscoll or something like that. And when coach realizes that it wasn't him, he was thinking of somebody else, he falls. Because it's like a Looney Tune-style gag where the coyote can run across the chasm as long as he doesn't look down. It's like (laughs) an old type of side gag where as long as coach doesn't realize he can't do this, he can do it. Yeah, we, we we gotta hold on to that stuff because my home run, one of my home runs, is gonna be in the whole coach exercise bit. So <laughs> okay. if, if if you if we can just hang right. hang with that one, and uh, right. I'll uh, from I do I, I do want to mention, you know, I was talking about the names, and uh, one of the names that uh, is real interesting, uh, you know, Diane has to pick a nom de plume, <laughs> or she she yes. when uh, she writes Sam's book. And uh, she she writes the book under the name Jessica Simpson Borgia. And, you know, what are the odds that Jessica Simpson would be part of the? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, a decade and a half later, that Jessica Simpson would actually be a popular name. <laughs> um, and something else, when he comes back, it, it kind of goes back to one of little Diane's Dianisms, I guess. Um, the way, you know, whenever Norm walks in, which he doesn't actually get an entrance like that in this episode, um, but when Norm walks in, everyone sh- shouts out, Norm! Diane always says Norman. She refers to him by his full name. Sometimes she calls Cliff Clifford. In this one, when Dick Cavett comes back, she calls him Richard. And it's like this weird little thing that she does, but like she never calls Sam Samuel. Like, yeah, well, one of my favorite, that was one of my favorite things was, you know, uh, the, the, the studio audience di- didn't particularly laugh at this, but I loved how Diane said goodbye to Dick Cabot after he told them the book that they had done and we're getting a little bit of ahead, but it wasn't racy enough. And, you know, only <laughs> Diane would say, ta-ta, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean, that is basically where it comes when he returns he tells them that he, he what does he say? He says the writing was competent, uh, had a certain energy, but basically says he's not gonna he's not gonna pass it along. And he's like, frankly, it wasn't controversial enough. He's like, that's what the publishers are looking for—a lot of you know spiciness. And, and Sam's like, well, what about my alcoholism? And they're like, well, frankly, that's not enough. Maybe if you had done more drugs or homosexuality or perversion. And Sam's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't get out. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't get out more. Great interaction, you know, when Sam and Diane are talking about you know putting the book together. It's, I mean, it's it's classic Sam and Diane stuff. Yeah, yeah, and the way they can kind of like go to go and feed into each other's egos in that moment. And then when he says, you know, you, you allude to have been a bit of a playboy, and Sam is like, playboy, hell yes, he's like really excited about this, like it's a, something to be bre- to to boast about. And of course, he has to look at Diane, catch her glance, and be like, oh, but now you know that's all that's all in the past. Uh, so, you know, Dick Cavett says, well, you know, if you saw other publishers, not mine, but other publishers really looking for that thing. He's, he basically, he puts it out, sex sells. 
He's like, so maybe like rewrite it with that angle, and you know, best of luck to you. And that's when he leaves. And of course, the same with Diane. Diane feels crushed. She feels defeated. But he's like, hey, let's try it. She's like, I don't want to write your tawdry memoirs about sex and everything. He's like, well, would Jessica Simpson Bourget do that type of thing? And she, <laughs> Diane, that little smut peddler, of course. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Yeah. So. Um, then getting back to once Wally comes back and, and he comes back furious at Norm because Norm called the cops and said that Wally had dope on him so he got strip searched and comes back to get his revenge it's perfect entrance he walks in and Cliff says here comes Black Barton this town ain't big enough for the two of you dot 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 of course which town is <laughs> <laughs> Carla has a line here like when they're when they're facing off they're basically just like throwing out lines like to stall and everything. Carlos says, talk is cheap, throw some hands. That was like the first time I ever heard that phrase, throwing hands, as an expression or a euphemism for like punching or something like that. I heard it in this episode, and then I never heard it again until just within the like the last couple of years. That seems to have come back, like in the like kind of where I like I hear that sort of in conversation, people talking like reviewing action movies and things like that. I hear that that phrase a lot, you know, throwing hands. I had never heard that anywhere else except for this episode. No, I, I guess it's it's something. Maybe I'm just old enough to remember that, but yeah, that that's that's something that definitely sounds familiar. You know, when Cliff and Norm were you know, dealing with the whole Vera situation. And this, you know, one of the, the best lines when I was going back and, and, and uh, grabbing the lines that I really loved, Cliff's giving Norm advice on his marriage. And, you know, of course, Cliff has to give it some advice on how to deal with Wally going after Vera. And Cliff says, uh, you sort of hit bottom now. So it's time to make repairs, fix the engine and get back on the road. And <laughs> coach says, don't tell me you wrecked a car too, Normie. And Cliff says, no, it's a metaphor. And coach goes, those are the hardest parts to get for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there's there's another little exchange between Wally and Norm that almost made my my highlights, which was um when uh, he's like he mentions like, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna level you know he's like, I like Vera, I like her a lot. And Norm's like, Hey, how'd you like the state trooper with the icy hands? Of course the <laughs> friends like laugh with him and everything. And Wally just stone faced cold looks at him, he's like, It had its moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah norm, norm uh he got it what was it a drug tried to get him on uh send some cops over telling me he, he had drugs or something like yeah, that yeah, he sent him, yeah yeah norm and wally you know they they end up getting into the the wrestling match on the floor they finally kind of it comes to a head in the in, in this scene and the, they basically got each other they, they got each other's heads in a scissor lock and cliffy <laughs> looks down and says it's not exactly fraser ali is it <laughs> Which I love that the way their fight just like pro- progresses from them like spinning around each other to basically locking arms and then almost sumo style like belly bumping each other because they're both large guys and just framing each other like that until they both get to the floor and then you're right the, the heads in the scissor lock which lasts for hours and hours until past closing time. Normie comes out the victory, he wins, and he has a great line. He tells Wally, he's like, now take whatever's left of your self-respect and clear out of here. <laughs> I mean, Walter was perfect in, in this. I, it, it, I think he didn't he have one more uh, episode he was in or, uh, or was that it? Not I, as I, the same I, character. The actor might have come back. Right, right. And I, I, it felt like when you watched, didn't it feel like you thought, well, you know, this would be perfect kind of occasional guy to come in and be sort of Norm's counter a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, he yeah, could have been. That would have been interesting. Yeah. 
beyond that, like the the final punchline was going to get into sort of the realm of what I had for my home runs. So um, it's God, it's. It's. I mean, for those of you listening, I hope you've been catching that every line is gold, and this one is punctuated by two really good storylines that are both pretty weighty and both memorable for their characters. Two really good cameos. I mean, obviously, the Dick Cavett appearance is much juicier because he's got the wittier lines, he's got the funny, but the Wally Bodell character, played by Walter Okowitz, he's also really funny and really compelling in his role, and, and they both do great jobs. I've almost got three home run calls. Where, where do you want me to start? <laughs> well, uh, we'll go through first uh, Norm's tab, which actually, surprisingly, I only gave him credit for two beers in this episode, which considering a, a couple episodes ago, he was in the double digits for two shows in a row. And considering how big he is in this episode, he really doesn't have a lot of time for drinking because he's on the floor for a good chunk of the end. And then, you know, in the beginning, when Sam comes in during the cold open, he's drinking coffee. So he only had two beers for this one, which brings him up to 154 for the series so far. Um, before we get into the home runs, though, for the employee of the week, who did you think was the episode's MVP? This is easy for me. It's Coach. He had so many incredible lines in this episode. It just he crushed it one after another after another. And and, and I got to get to a couple more of them. But uh, Coach was just I mean, he was. This was why I love Nick Colasanto. He he is my guy. Probably nobody in this series outside of, you know, Diane and Sam. Are, and there's nobody I love more than Coach. He's so good. I'm going to go a different direction. And I I was even tempted to give it to the guest, Dick Cavett, because he was so good in this. But I, I gave it to Norm. I really thought Norm had so much to do in this episode and was so great in every single part of uh, the delivery. So I just I thought Norm was a great little winner for this episode. Uh, getting getting into uh, the home runs, I, I'm sure we have a couple of them each. There was one that I wanted to single out because it was a little bit more subtle because it wasn't in audio. It wasn't a line. It was an expression. And it was when the group is all, they first recognize Dick Cavett and everybody like that. Cliff has his line and Carly even says he's kind of he's kind of cute for a brainiac type of thing. Sam has this line where he's like, oh yeah, I used to watch him on PBS. The look on Diane's face when when she hears that Sam had watched the, PBS, the, ex, the joy. It's like <laughs> it's like this first ray of hope that she never could have expected. Like she's like he watched. There's something to this guy that I can actually connect with. Like like this look of hope. Like her eyes just go wide. She turns around. Like oh my god. It's like they're seeing the face of God. She's like, you watch PBS? And he's like, and of course, Sam brings it down. He's like, yeah, I watched that one show where the girls are answering the telephones. He just thinks of a, telef- a telethon would be a good place to call Yeah, them. yeah. Yeah, that I, was, I that was that, perfect. Just that look on her face when she hears that. So, all right, what are some of, what are one of yours? We can go through a couple of them. All right, well, I'll, I'll just, the, my first two, and, and I'm going to give these two a run, runner up. Uh, this first one especially is, is a runner up for me. Um, again, it, we got to go to coach and coach walks in and says he feels great because he's exercising and he was doing laps in the pool. And <laughs> Carla asks, how many laps is he up? You know, how many laps you up to coach? And he says, three takes about an hour. Cliff says, that's kind of slow, isn't it? Coach says, I could run a hell of a lot faster if they got the water out of there. <laughs> that's such a good line. I love that beat. And just a little bit later, like just a few seconds later, uh, Cliff says to coach, uh, you know what they say, healthy body, healthy mind. Pick one you have a shot at. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
good, good, yeah. Um, my favorite line, my favorite little beat goes back to Sam and Diane uh, when they're talking about actually Sam writing his memoirs or something like that to impress the cabinet. And he says, I used to write pretty good in high school. And Diane corrects him. She's like, you didn't write good. You wrote well. And Coach has a line of response, and maybe maybe that was one of yours. But she's like, you didn't write good. You wrote well. Cut to a few minutes later, Sam is trying to compliment her when he's trying to entice her to write his his memoir. He's like, hey, come on. You can write it for me. You're a pretty – you're a really good – I mean, well writer. <laughs> and just like the way <laughs> yeah. he says – he has to check himself, and he, ins- he inserts the wrong adjective based on what she said before. He thinks that he's actually learned something from her. He's like, you're a pretty well writer. <laughs> yeah, and what, what a great little beat in that. And I just – I noticed it on this the second time, and it's just one of those things that – Shelley Long is so incredible at she he, he says pretty well and he's almost like he's going to keep going and she sticks her arm out like okay stop that, you, you don't you're, you're screwing it up don't don't say anymore and it was just it's that immediate reaction of like okay I know that you can't fit, do this and you're not that brave you know I know you're trying, her, her but you're trying but you're getting it wrong so just stop right now <laughs> yeah it's awesome my my big home run call. This one it's it's interesting because I'm gonna I'm gonna say it and there's no way I can do this justice as what a great little moment this was. But uh, Sam and Diane decide they're gonna write you know Sam's story with the swinging bachelor life and all that. And they're walking into his office and uh, getting <laughs> turned on by the idea. And so Sam turns around and he says, "Coach, we don't want to be bothered." And Coach says, "Who does?" <laughs> It's so good. It's so matter of fact. It just it's like, oh, I love that line. I did have that as a backup too, so I'm glad that was your number one. <laughs> and, and the and the thing about it is, like I was talking about earlier, that's just one of those things where it's just like one of those lines that you would say in life, and you know, it's so it's kind of like this obvious, like, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, who doesn't want to be bothered? <laughs> <laughs> of course, like, what a weird thing to say. Why would you even phrase it that way? Just yeah. No, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Ah, this was yeah, this is a really strong episode. It's definitely one of my favorites from season two. Um, when I get through my, for my rankings, uh, this one will be pretty high up there. Of course, there are a lot of there are a lot of really strong episodes from this season. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for helping me cover this one. Um, was it, were there any other notes or anything else you want to say about this one before we go? Nothing else about the show, but I want to give you a, a kind of a Cheers adjacent story. Can I do that before I go? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, this is uh, stay with me on this one because I'll bring it all around. But, you know, after years of hearing about the TV show, My So-Called Life, and I don't know, is that something that you've, yeah, you've actually, seen before? Yeah, I was, I, I was the prime age for that show when that was on. Yeah, that was right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I finally decided to watch it, you know, maybe 25 years after it originally aired. <laughs> and for, for those who are unfamiliar, it only lasted one season, starred a 15-year-old Claire Danes. Uh, her acting brilliance was already there. It also had a young Jared Leto. And mm-hmm. right now, I'm a few episodes in, really impressed. But anyways, just by coincidence, just a coincidence, this past week, uh, I saw an episode that centers around a substitute English teacher at her high school. About. And the guy who played him was extraordinary. And his name is Roger, Roger. Rees, who is who? Robin Colcord in seasons eight and beyond. Yeah, he, one of my favorite, very favorite guest characters in the show. I love him so much. And also, I just did, I didn't know this and, and kind of sad, but he passed away back in 2015. 
And Ryan, he died on my birthday. Oh, no. Oh, that sucks. So that that was really odd. And by the way, his companion of 33 years, a guy named Rick Ellis. Rick Ellis co-wrote the Broadway musicals The Addams Family and Jersey Boys Mm. uh, with a man named Marshall Brickman. So Rick Ellis and Marshall Brickman co-wrote that. And Rick Ellis, again, was uh, Roger Rees. Uh, he was they cohabit or I guess were partners for 30 plus years. And anyway, Marshall Brickman won a best screenplay Oscar with Woody Allen for the movie Annie Hall, meaning he probably wrote dialogue for Rick Cabot. So how about that for bringing this all the way around? <laughs> wow. Nice. Nice. Oh, God. Yeah, I love Roger Rees. I, I do. I as soon as you mentioned it, I, I knew where you were going. I was like, I remember him in that episode. Yeah, because I loved him in that. And I knew him from this. He was great in the West Wing. Um, God, yeah. I, I, yeah, that sucks. He died on your birthday. I just realized uh, not too long, a couple months ago, that one of my favorite Batman artists uh, died on my birthday last year. So you never know what you're going to find out when you're roaming around on IMDb or Wikipedia or whatever. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, again, Robert, thank you very much for being on this episode of Cheerscast. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, if you're a Houston sports fan, Astros, Rockets and Texans. And a year ago when we did this, you know, it was uh, the Astros were about to go up against uh, Sam Malone's team. The Red Sox in the in the playoffs didn't go so well for the Astros. But I I basically talk about all, all Houston sports, especially uh, the big professional teams on my Houston Sports Talk podcast and uh, that's pretty much you can find it anywhere you find podcast. And also, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter at HST podcast. If you if you want to reach out or, you know, my Houston Sports Talk Facebook page as well. But uh, always so much fun to talk to you. And, you know, I love the show. Obviously, it's one of my favorites. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show again. Listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. You can support the show by liking and sharing on Facebook and Twitter. Or you can leave a comment on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. But you can also support this show financially. The Fire and Water Podcast Network is now on Patreon, and I want to give special thanks to all of our patrons over there with an extra special shout-out to former guest Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians, who sponsors this particular show. For more information on how you can support the network in general or this podcast in particular, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thank you everyone for listening, and until next time, we're closed. Sam, I'm not going to have my first published manuscript be a memoir full of luridities. Oh, no. oh sweetheart, I think what he was talking about was... A- I know what he was talking about. Hey, come on, Diane. I mean, if we get published, this, this could mean a whole new life for me. For you, too. No, no, I would never prostitute my talents that way. Well, would Jessica Simpson Bourget? That little smut peddler? (laughs) In a minute. I got some paper in the office. Okay. If they want steam, I'll give them steam. I'm going to use every weapon in my literary arsenal to make their tongues hang out in unbridled desire. Coach, we don't want to be bothered. Who does? (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.